All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10. Just a few announcements. Um, Let's see. (laughs) My mind went blank as soon as I came out. I was going to write them down. Uh, No potluck this uh, weekend because of uh, 4th of July. We will have prayer, though, Sunday night still. Um, That'll be at 7 o'clock. Um, kids camp registrations, those are due this Sunday. This is the cutoff. Um, they were on the sheets and everything, so just so you know, we're giving you a final warning uh, to get your kids signed up for camp this year. And then you can just leave those on the box in the back there. Um, let's see. Uh, I saw July 9th, uh, kids pool night uh, at the at Beal, I assume, is where that's going to be. But there's flyers out there for that. You can grab those for their youth night there. Um, and that's from ages 13 to 17, I think, something like that. So anyway, that's all on there. All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word and the time we get to have this morning, or this afternoon in it. Um, Paul has such a heart for these people. And as I was, we were singing that last song, just um, the, the, the heartache that the writer of that song had, Lord, I, I, I'm prone to wander. I know that about myself. And he's just returning to you. Um, Paul desperately wants the Corinthian church to have that heart. He understands their frailty, just like you understand our frailty, but he wants to produce in them a desire to be uh, repentant and uh, devoted um, and to understand the better place is with you. And so God, help us to receive that tonight. Some of us need to return. Some of us are in danger of walking away. Um, Some of us think we're doing okay, but your word will tell us tonight to be careful and to take heed if we think we stand lest we fall because we're susceptible to any of these things. And so God, help us to hear for ourselves tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 10 is an amazing chapter. I think the last uh, nine chapters have been amazing. I haven't been disappointed yet in Corinthians. Um, as many times as I've studied and taught this, it's, it's rich and deep every time. And so tonight will be no different. Paul switches gears a little bit from um, encouraging them, the Corinthian church, to serve each other, to care for one another, to consider one another higher than themselves, which is the hallmark of a Christian. We don't live for ourselves. We first live for Jesus Christ, but we also live for each other. We make it our aim to serve all. Jesus tried to repeatedly tell the 12 disciples, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. And of course, he did that not only in his teaching, but he demonstrated that in his walk. He was such a gracious teacher of theirs. He would wash their feet. He would take the time to minister, even when there was no time to minister. He'd take the time to feed when there was no time to feed. He gave everything, um, all of his time. And when he needed to relax and when he needed to get away or a break, he'd wait till everybody was asleep. And then he'd go up on top of the mountain to pray and to be refreshed by the Lord because times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And he knew that was better. His physical body may be tired, and we've, we've read the story how he fell asleep on the boat while the storm was raging. He must have been awfully tired, and our physical bodies can do that. That's why people fall asleep in church. I'm convinced it's, I'm an exciting, amazing teacher. It's not me. It's got to be just that your physical bodies are tired, and that's understandable. Um, back rows are usually open. You could stretch out if you needed to, you know, and get that rest. But our spiritual body, that's what needs to be revived. That's what needs that refreshment. That can carry you a lot farther than your physical body can. 
Physical body, when I get tired, I get irritable. I don't know if anybody else is like that. I get a little short. But when my spiritual body, when my relationship with Christ is refreshed and on fire and vibrant, I can, I can make it through. I get a little, I may be tired physically, but I'm giddy tired. You know, I'm a little slap happy. But God helps. And so Paul is trying to switch gears and get their minds thinking of quit dividing and quit saying you're better because you have this gift or that you're under that teacher or whatever, but start looking out for one another. Start taking care of each other, seeing their needs, you know. You can't see everybody's needs. You can't meet everybody's needs. Nobody's expected to. The world would think that and the world would tell you that. You just need to meet the needs of the people that God brings in front of you. And that's important. So verse 1, chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." When the nation of Israel was set free from being held captive in Egypt, they cried out for that deliverance. Please, God, send someone to bring us out of here. And he did. And he brought Moses. They were even rebellious in Moses reaching out to Pharaoh and doing the things he was doing. It was too slow. It was making their life harder. They were already having second thoughts about crying out for this help. It would have been better if you hadn't showed up, Moses, because life was a little bit easier before you came. We didn't realize it could get worse until you came. He started telling them to make bricks without straw and so on. I think they forget about throwing their baby boys into the Nile and, and, and the whippings and the beatings and the starvations that took place. But it did get worse for a little bit. Well, God delivered them and brought them out with a mighty hand. And it was an amazing 10 plagues that struck every one of Egypt's gods, showed them who was boss, showed the Egyptians who was boss, who God is. He's Lord of Lords. And he brought these millions of people out. It was a mixed multitude because anybody that wanted to leave could leave. Any slave. It wasn't just Israelis that were slaves. It would be anybody, Ethiopians or anybody they had, they had conquered. And so a mixed multitude leaves. And so when he describes what they had to do, they were all under the cloud. Remember, when they were led, they were led by a, a pillar of fire and then a pillar of smoke, which was like a cloud that kept them shaded in the daytime from the desert heat. And you'd stay within that shadow, and wherever the shadow went, wherever this pillar went, they would follow it. And it kept them cool and protected from the heat. There was also a pillar of fire, but he doesn't bring that up. The idea it was a baptism of some sorts. The writer here describes it as the cloud being a baptism. The sea, the Red Sea, as they passed through the Red Sea, that was a sort of a baptism, spiritually speaking. He's trying to speak to the Corinthians in a spiritual way, but looking at the exodus, the physical exodus, as a spiritual event, a type of our walk with the Lord. We were in captive in Egypt, the world, every one of us in this room, doing what it wanted us to do. But it was a comfortable pain, We were used to that kind of pain. The world was normal for us. You know, I run into people every day and I run into kids every day that are in less than ideal circumstances parentally or home life. And you look at these kids and they're, you see what they're in and you mourn for them, but they're not mourning for themselves because they haven't known anything else. 
They don't know that it can be better, what it's supposed to look like. They've never experienced the godly family that God calls us all to. They've only experienced what the world gave them. But they are thriving in it, sort of, the best they can, but they don't know. Well, that was us in the world. As unbelievers, we didn't know there could be life everlasting. We didn't know that could be better than this. We just thought, well, Christianity or Jesus or whatever. I mean, this was my mantra. I don't know if it was yours, but that just means I can't do stuff that I like to do. I come to Christ, it makes my life worse. It means I can't do the things that bring me the joy that I find in this world. As a, as a defeated soul, there are areas of, of pleasure that I can have, and I like those things. And what Christianity is telling me is, I can't have those things anymore. I didn't understand. But not only did he want to deliver me from those pleasures that I thought were bringing me pleasure, but were hurting me and hurting everybody else around me, but he wants to raise me up out of the muck and mire and say, that's not home. And I don't think we've even come close to the godly family that we can have in him. I think we're content a lot of times in where we are. Well, I mean, it would have been better if he hadn't come into my life. There are times where we're in this place of being reinvented, being remade, new creatures, new creations in Christ, where I don't know, this is a a lot of messing around, you know? And we think maybe it would be better to go back to the world and it was a lot simpler and I didn't have to think so much. I didn't have to feel so guilty all the time. I didn't have to feel so much shame. I didn't have to work so hard. Being moral, morals, you know, and living for God. What he's trying to do is show us what normal is. Normal is loving people and taking care of them and thinking of others more than you think of yourself and looking out for their needs and not your own and Worshiping him and not causing yourself harm anymore. So he takes these people out and Paul is trying to explain to them that it was like a baptism in this cloud. It's like a leaving the old behind and coming into a new world, a new walk, a new life. And they would go through the sea. They were all baptized into that baptism. They ate spiritual food. Now, what he's referring to is the manna that came down from heaven. Manna was this little uh, wafer-like substance that God provided for the nation of Israel while they're in the wilderness. This wilderness experience is what he's trying to drive home, to bring up, to remind them that you're going through that Corinthian church. Every believer has to go through this wilderness. And this spiritual food that they'd eat, this coriander-flavored Uh, food, kind of bland, but always present and always nutritious and always everything they needed was available for them every single day. And they drank the same spiritual drink, this water, this rock that followed them. It's more insight. We don't know what that means exactly, but a million plus people in the middle of the desert to provide food and water them is quite a, well, it's a lot of logistics, except for God. He just says, no, just water comes out of rock wherever they go. And they would drink that. But he says that was Christ. That was salvation. So for us, we were taken out of Egypt. We were uh, led by God to a place of repentance and of leaving the old behind and walking in the new creation that we're supposed to be and going through that water baptism of the Red Sea and coming out the other side and having God provide this wonderful manna, the word of God for us that we can read and eat every day to feed our spiritual souls and to drink that water that's refreshing, the water of the Holy Spirit. 
He's bringing them to that place to understand that what they're doing is, has been done before. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And he's going to explain why that was. Many of them died in that place of wilderness. Nobody likes that, this wilderness thing. When he says all, he means all. He's trying to convey to them that everybody goes through this. Not everybody succeeds. Everybody goes through this wilderness, but not everybody comes through on the other side of it, unharmed anyway. The nation of Israel were taken through a wilderness. It was a direct route from Egypt to the promised land that they were being brought to by way, of, by, by way of the Red Sea across the wilderness and then up to the River Jordan. And it was across the River Jordan on the other side. That's where they were going to make their home. That was the land that God had set aside for them to occupy freely, to enjoy. And he would take care of them and bless them there. It was in the wilderness portion of this journey, this straight shot was where they got into the trouble. And that's where we get into our trouble, and that's where the Corinthian church gets into their trouble. I'm all for getting away from Egypt as long as it's better. I'm all for going through the Red Sea, provided I don't drown. I'm all for the wilderness, provided I get out of the wilderness. And that was a promise of God. I'm taking you through it, but you're not going to dwell there. That's not your home. The path to the promised land through this wilderness was designed to give them some separation from the world. Every Christian has to go through that. And I don't know if you've gone through that. Maybe you're in it. Maybe you're just about to hit that wilderness. But there's a separation that takes place from the world. Everything you're comfortable with, everything that was home to you, everything you were used to, as bad as it was, that's the amazing thing and breaks my heart about these little kids. When you ask these kids, is there any, these kids that have been abused, these kids that have grown up in these less than ideal circumstances, if there's anything you could do, what would you want? Is there anything you want? What would it be? I want to go back to my mom. Because that's what they know. And of course, that's built in, of course. But it's not what's best for them. Oftentimes, the Christian, as soon as they get baptized and as soon as they begin to walk and they see the wilderness and their friends begin to separate from them and they begin isolated from their family members because you're weird now, you're a religious nut, even though, no, I'm just I'm happier than I ever have been before. But they don't want to touch it. They don't want to be near it. You feel isolated. And you begin to feel this loneliness that's on purpose. It's by God's design. The wilderness for the nation of Israel was to create a dependence upon him. You have to come to me for your food. You need to come to me for your water. You need to come for me to, for your all in all. I'm here to provide everything. You'll be able to minister to the world eventually, but right now I need you separate from the world so that I can minister to you. You can be restored and you can begin to feel what a normal, loving relationship is like as I give and give and give to you and love you unconditionally. I want you to know what that's like. For a traumatized person, for someone who's been beat their whole lives, I mean, these are generational slaves. To come out of that and to not get beat in the morning was unnerving to them. It was unusual. It was strange. It was, I don't understand this. I, I usually get beat by now, but I'm not. And it was sort of euphoric, sort of exciting, but a little uncomfortable because that's what I know. 
That's how I knew where I belonged or what my next step was. That's one of the biggest problems with prison ministries is when these guys get out or gals get out after decades. What do I do with myself? No one's telling me to go to the bathroom. No one's telling me when to go to bed. No one's telling me what to eat. No, I've got to do this all on my own. It's overwhelming for them. They need to be uh, integrated back into society, taught all over again. That's what's happening. You've got millions of traumatized people that are coming out of the world out of Egypt, as well as Christians, it's the same thing. Corinthian church is coming out of a horrific society. They have one of the worst cities on record. Most disgusting things of sin ever. And they grew up in it and they've, it's who they are. And Paul is saying, it's not. It's not who you are. The separation you feel, the loneliness you feel, it's designed to separate you from the world, to give a dependency upon God, and to begin to harvest or develop in you a healthy relationship with a loving father. And so here's the problem. They get in the wilderness, and they get this bread every day, and they get this water every day, and they have clear direction, and they really don't have much else to do except walk. They begin to remember the old things and begin to sin by not appreciating the one who's so giving and loving. Um, Verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual morality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age, ages have come. Paul is saying those stories that we read about in the Exodus are not just there for historical purposes or to give you background into your heritage and where you came from. It's for you to learn from those mistakes, from their mistakes, so you don't have to go through those again. We have such an attachment to the world, and we have attachment to our sin and attachment to people in our lives that only brought pain and suffering, and it's difficult to make that break. But God expects it. And he doesn't ask us to make that break without giving us something to go to. He's given us everything. And yet, the nation of Israel falls into these things. The evil things, that's in Numbers 11. If you want to write these down or look at them later. We don't have time to go over all these scriptures. The evil things were simply looking back and wishing that you had the old food. They were worried. They were concerned. It was in the desert. and the, They were getting tired of the manna. It was bland. It wasn't spicy. You know, I like spicy. You like spicy with a whip on your back? They don't, they don't remember those things. I remember the leeks and the onions, and I remember, oh, it was so much easier back then. All we have is this worthless manna. I remember when I could read romance novels and I could read all the magic and all the crazy things that I used to read or I could watch all the things I used to watch. Oh, I miss the leeks and the onions and the melons. And all I have is, am I going to read the Bible again? This worthless manna. 
It gets old and tired, even though it's absolutely changing my life, restoring my soul, giving me peace for the first time I've ever had, a love, an understanding. It's speaking to me. It's alive and changing my life. But what about those old things, evil things? They lusted after them. Oh, I wish I had them back. We're called not to lust after the evil things. We're called to that. It's expected. Do not become idolaters. Well, they did that in Exodus 32. Moses goes up on top of the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He doesn't know he's going up for that, but he goes up. It's been a long time. He hasn't come back down over about 40 days. He comes down, and it turns out that they were tired of waiting on him for a month. And they decide to take their golden earrings off and all the gold that God gave them from the Egyptians when they left, throw it into the fire, which they didn't. They made a mold of a calf and they poured it in there and they smelted it and built it and made a little calf. And they worshiped this calf. And guess how they got to worship the calf? They got to worship the calf with all the lust that they've always wanted to commit. This calf that brought us out of Egypt, they said, wants to be worshiped this way and they rose up to play. Well, play isn't like jumping rope, you know playing hopscotch. The play is exactly what you think a hedonistic religion would expect. This is it. All the sex you could ever want, all the drunkenness you could ever want, all the gorging of food and the everything you've ever wanted to do. This is what our calf wants. And so they began to worship these idols, which is what idolatry is. We make gods that let us lust. This is what we do. Paul is warning the Corinthian churches, don't fall into that. Don't make God out to be something that he's not. See, that is what's happening, and that's what you hear more and more, and you'll hear it all the time. You're in a Bible-teaching church. We believe the Bible. We teach the Bible. We hold on to it as the final authority and is the truth. But many, many Christians don't, and many, none of the world does. So they'll say things like, well, God doesn't judge people. We just talked about that, you know. Well, that's because they don't read their Bible and they don't know what it says. He absolutely judges people. That is the whole point of the Christ, the Savior coming, to save us from God's judgment, to save us from his wrath. That's the whole point of Christianity. There is no Christianity without judgment. There is no Christianity without a Christ, the Savior, Jesus, being crucified, being the sacrifice for the sins of the world. That is what Christianity is. Otherwise, it's not Christianity. But we can make it out to be whatever we want, which then turns Christianity, no matter what, what you, you say the word, but what does it mean? It means I get to do whatever I want to do. Well, that's not Christianity. It's become idolatry. This is the God. This is the Christianity that brought us out of Egypt. It lets me do this. He lets me do this. He lets me do this. But that's not what he says about himself. This isn't a philosophy or an ancient book that we've discovered and decided to just blindly follow. This is the living God writing down, here's what I am and here's who I am and here's what I like and what I don't like. This is it. This is, this is, you don't get to create me. I created you. But just like the nation of Israel did by creating this idol, so Christians are doing today. Marginal Christians, unbiblical, illiterate Christians 
are doing today, making Christianity out to be something that it's not. I, that's fine. Don't be a Christian then. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, be a biblical Christian because that's all Christianity is, is biblical Christianity. You wouldn't know anything about Jesus other, outside of the word. And so you have to believe it. Otherwise, throw them away. That's fine. Then don't be a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't call yourself a Christian. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you have to believe the word of God. Otherwise, you're not. It's just a fact. But we'll see that more and more, making Christianity as an idol and turning it into something that it obviously isn't. It's just in name only. He says they also fell into sexual immorality. You see that in Numbers 25. That was an interesting one. You can read that, but... um, as Christians, we're called to not be partakers in that in any way, shape, or form, or justify it anyway in our lives. It's sin, evil things, lusting after those things, idolatry after those things, sexual immorality. And if you don't know what sexual immorality is, you need to study it or ask me later. I can bring you to scriptures. I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm just going to tell you what the Bible that tells us all about Jesus says, what sexual immorality is. And that's the definition. We don't get to make it up. He tells us. We don't have to guess. 23,000 fell that day. They were beginning to worship uh, like the Moabs did, the Moabites. And part of that was, you know, what, do whatever you want to do. Whatever feels good, do it kind of thing. Sexual morality. Well, it, was, it went bad. <laughs> it went bad. And they, uh, they fell it wasn't until one of these zealous Israelis stopped them from in the middle of their act of sexual immorality that the actual um, the punishment quit. The plague stopped, basically. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> Thank goodness, right? Um, be interesting church services, you know. Um, we're called to obey. It's easy to see someone over there in their other tent get speared and decide to quit sinning. Got it. You know, it's a whole other thing to come to a church service and sit in our brown warm chairs with our Bibles that are sort of marked up and listen and hear that, oh, I'm not supposed to do that anymore. Yeah, I'll give that some thought. You know, it's harder. It's harder. You have to quit sinning because you love God, because you want to. Not because you're scared of being speared, you know. He doesn't do that anymore. He calls us to do it because he loved us, because he died on the cross for us, because he's a servant of all, because he demonstrated that love for us, and he expects us to respond in kind. But that's voluntary. Paul is asking them, stop. Stop. Don't fall into these things. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. The serpent in the wilderness uh, is described in John chapter 3. Jesus likens himself being put on the cross like the serpent in the wilderness. Well, that's where this story comes from. The serpents had gone through. God had sent them in to start, hey, if this is what you want, you don't want me you want to live the way you want to live, and then here comes the plague. You know, that's fine. Do whatever you want to do. And there comes these snakes. Moses begins to pray on behalf of the people. What do we have to do? And he says, well, then make a bronze serpent. 
Put it on a stick, put it on a pole, and put it up high. And anybody that looks at this serpent will be healed from the, from the bites. And it says some of them looked, which of course means some of them didn't. How does a bronze serpent on a stick heal anybody from anything? It doesn't make any sense, you know. And so some, in their stubbornness and in their pride, with the snake bite, wherever it was, decided not to take the way of escape, the way of healing that God had offered them by looking at the serpent on the pole. And they died from their wounds. But everybody that did look, did trust God and said, I don't know how it works, but I'm going to look to the serpent on the pole and I'm going to trust in him, in God's way. They got healed because it was by faith. I don't know how it happens, but God said so, so I believe it. And they got healed. And Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be, high and lifted up. And anybody that looks to the cross for salvation will be healed from their sins, and anybody who doesn't won't. And people in their pride still to this day will not look to the cross because they don't understand how it works. They will not take it away of healing, of forgiveness that God offers them because they don't, well, they don't want to. And they will die in their sins. And those who looked won't. Paul is begging them, don't tempt Christ. Don't tempt him. And then he puts complaining in here at the end. (laughs) That's in Exodus 14. Just complaining. They didn't like the flavor of the manna. They wanted meat. God says, I'll give you meat. I'll give you quail for 30 days. You're going to have so much quail, you'll be sickened by the quail. And that's the point. It wasn't that God was being vindictive. Oh, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'm going to give it to you. It comes out your nostrils. That's literally what he says. What he's saying at the end there was so that you're sickened by it. Oh, I miss sin. Well, you don't say that. I missed my old life. I miss the things I used to do. I miss going out on Friday nights or Saturday nights or whatever night. Or I miss her or him or whatever it may be. Those things. I miss those things. You begin to complain. Ah, boring, bland, uh, vanilla, you know. Oh, I wish I had, you know, be careful. Because he may just let you have it until you're so sick of it that it comes out your nostrils, you know. So much sin in your life that you can't believe you ever wanted to go back to it. You want leeks and onions? Have as much as you want until it's nauseating. That's the, that's the thing. Every food that you, Think of the food that you love the most. Now imagine eating that only for a year. You would never want to eat it again. You know, That's the idea. Complaining. We have to be very careful about our complaining. We need to keep it to ourselves. If we can't get rid of it, we don't need to verbalize it. We think we need to verbalize it, but you don't. We can keep it to ourselves. Bring it to God. Complain a little bit, but I would warn you. (laughs) Caution you. Begin to think about the things he has done for you. Think about the blessings. Think about the vibrant colors of life that he's brought into you now that you can, some of us are sober now and can see it. Think about the lack of drama in your life. You call it vanilla, you call it plain. No, it's called peace. <laughs> you don't have people calling you. You don't have the cops looking for you. You don't have all the things that... In case you laughed a little loud at that one. You know, it's not vanilla. It's 
life the way it was intended, peaceful and amazing. Well, we get to the bigger issue here. Now, all these things happen to them as examples and were written for our admonition. It's meant to admonish us. It's meant to make us feel, wait a minute, I'm falling into the same temptations and evils that the nation of Israel did when they left Egypt. I'm in the wilderness and I'm tired of it. But if I complain about it too much longer, I'm going to spend 40 years here when it's a direct shot to get to the promised land. Just go to the promised land. Trust that separation. Trust the process, what God is bringing you through. Believe him. Enjoy that time of separation from the world, just you and he, spending time together, growing closer. That's what honeymoons are for, right? Our honeymoons aren't long enough, you know? need 30 days. It's just you and him or you and her, you know? And that's all you do is see each other every day and you eat and you drink and just enjoy each other for 30 days without the world coming in, you know? Of course, who can afford 30 days, you know? Honeymoon. So you got to work. That's the idea. I think the best thing that can happen to a young couple is for them to move away from their parents. And now as a parent, I, I completely disagree with that altogether. All I, think, <laughs> I think all my kids should live within earshot of me. And, and, and should it, But honestly, there's no better way for them to leave and cleave than to leave first so that they can cleave. And we parents, at least if they're going to stick around, need to stay out, butt out. That's hard, you know, because I can help, <laughs> you know. I can make their life easier and better, yeah. Yeah, and the three of you will just do fine, you know. <laughs> no. God wants us alone. Oh, I used to go out on Friday nights and be with all my friends. Yeah, but now he wants a date night with you. Some of the guys are like, that's kind of weird. It is. I know. It's not, though. I just want you to spend time with me one-on-one so that we can spend some time together, so that you hear my voice and I hear your voice, and that's the only voice in the room, so that we can cleave, so that we can be knit together, so that we can think the same way, one mind, one heart. I want to give you a new mind. I want to give you a new heart and have, but we need to have that time together. Verse 12 is the first scripture that God placed in my heart when I became a believer a long, 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 decades ago when I became a believer. Very first one, I remember where and when. Just starting to read the Bible, kind of Bible roulette guy. I didn't know where to start. I didn't, I didn't have the attention span to read through an entire book. I mean, I hated reading, hated it. And so I was just, you know, when I'd read it, Oh, it's really good. You know, I memorize it like it was a, a fortune cookie or something, you know, and I pulled it out. And, That's a good one. Well, this is the first one. And I think it's interesting that this is the first scripture that God decided to put on my heart. Of all the scriptures he could have put on my heart first, this is the one he gave me. And this is the one that has served me so well my entire life. Because of all the things we just read, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That keeps me from judging other people and pointing the finger at them because I need to watch my own walk. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine that those around you might get saved. It's all about walking the walk with the Lord so that you can minister to other people. But if you neglect taking heed to yourself, you won't save anybody. You can't minister to anybody. 
And if I think I stand like I don't need him anymore, like I can do this on my own, I will fall into all these things we just read. It's the most important verse in my life. Now, he's built upon that, obviously, but this is the most important verse, and it's carried me through. I don't trust myself ever. 30-plus years later, I don't trust myself walking by myself without God. I would never trust my own opinion. I'm not Everybody's looking at their phones. <laughs> I would never trust myself without praying first. I just don't because of this verse. It's built into me. I know I make mistakes. I know that if I would lead myself, I would lead myself just like I led myself before Christ. Into pain, into suffering, and hurting other people. Into rash behavior. So God has put this in my heart, and I pray that he puts it in all of our hearts. We have to be careful that we rely on him all the time. Call on him, ask him. He's there for us. We're his, you know. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Break that down a little bit. All temptation, anything that's come upon you is common. That's the first thing we have to remember about ourselves. My situation isn't harder or worse than anybody else's. I may think so as I compare with other people's lives, but we're not supposed to do that. Paul says, God says, Jesus says every, throughout Scripture, this is common for man, what you're going through. And it's so common that he, he always provides a way out. This is a temptation that everybody has to go through. There is always that desire to walk away from the Lord or to do this, that, or the other thing. But no temptation is so bad that you just had to give in to it and had to follow through. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And with that temptation, when it comes into your life, he will always provide an exit strategy. There's always a way out. My problem is, our problem is, we don't take that way out. We think we're stuck. We think we're, or we don't know, we don't think we're stuck. God will show us the way out, the way of escape. But we don't take it. We think we can endure. We think we're supposed to fight it. We think we're supposed to go through it somehow. No, just, just escape. Take the way out. I mean, the very next thing says flee. Verse 14, flee if you have to. Just run from it. You know? Yeah, but I got to ride with somebody to the party. Just run. It's a long way home. It's like six miles. You have a lot of time to pray. Get walking. Well, and that's when we, that's when we, we, oh, well, that's irrational. That doesn't make sense. I'm overreacting. I'm going to stay here with my red cup and sit in the corner. I'll mind my own business. I won't get into any trouble. Man, I'll just wait for my friend when he's ready to go home. Then I'll get in the car with him and we'll all go home. And that'll be the end of it. Phew, I'll just never do that again. I promise. I swear to God, get me out of this party and I'll never go again. God, I promise. When you should have ran. Because then she comes over half drunk, lays her head on her shoulder and decides, hey, you know, or whatever. And you find yourself in a place you shouldn't be. That's one example of many. Sometimes fleeing is what you do. I'm just going to go. I've had a lot of fleeing moments in my life and I've taken them. I'm so glad I did. People don't like it. It probably hurt a lot of people. 
But because of that verse 12 in my life, I knew that I had to obey him. And when he, by his Holy Spirit, would say, you need to run, I just went, you know, I've always been that way. He told me to go, I'm just going to go. Why are you going? Because he said so. Well, don't you think that you don't think you could do this? You don't think you could? I'm sure there's lots of options out there, but that's not what he said to me. He told me I'm supposed to go, so I'm going to go, you know? And that kind of black and white rigidity bothers people sometimes, and I can't help that. I'm always going to be like that my entire life, always, because I trust his word. I trust him. He knows me, and he's looking out for me. Therefore, my beloved, and he has to say that, Paul has to put that in there. You do know you're loved, like loved, unbelievably loved. Therefore, my beloved, because you're loved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. I'm assuming you're wise is what he's saying. I think I'm talking to wise people here. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Do we not share in the blood of Christ is the idea. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Don't we share in that? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Just like we take a loaf of bread like we're supposed to, break it up and give it to each person at communion time, and we all eat, we actually all ate the same loaf of bread, divided up, but likewise, we're all little pieces of bread in the body of Christ, and we're the body, we're the loaf, you know? We're just separated. Isn't that us? Don't we have that communion? That communion is a very powerful word. It's fellowship. You share in it, you know? Some people take this out of whack and think there's some kind of magical principles to having a little piece of bread and juice. That's what he's talking about. We share in that shed blood of Jesus Christ. The suffering he did, the walking in of righteousness that he did, the death that he died on the cross because he was perfect and sinless and the world hated him because of it. We're going to run that same course. We share in that bread. We share in that blood. It's the same thing. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. Look at them like a people group. Not spiritual, not governed by God, but just as a people, the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partaker of the altar? This is when the priests would get a sacrifice that they were supposed to perform and they would give it and they get to keep a portion of the meat for themselves. Didn't they partake of the altar? Weren't they in fellowship with it? As holy as the altar was, as holy as the place was, when they ate, didn't, that, didn't they kind of assimilate and become a part of it? Yeah. What am I saying? Then an idol is anything? Or what is offered to an idol is anything? That's a rhetorical question. No, it's not. Rather, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You can't have a divided heart when it comes to the Lord. I can't have my foot in the world and a foot at church. Or following the Lord. You can't do it that way. You can't have a divided heart. You're in or you're out. God doesn't accept that. He doesn't want that. We're called to be set apart. And to be different. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 1, it says we're a partaker. When he talks about these things, don't you partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. You can't be a partaker of these things. 
1 Peter 5.1, you're a partaker of the glory that will be. When we came to Christ, we're a partaker in that. We share in that. 2 Peter 1.4, we're partakers of the divine nature. Hebrews 12.10, we're partakers of his holiness. He, Ephesians 3.6, fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise. Philippians 1.7, partakers with me of grace. Hebrews 3.1, partakers of the heavenly calling. Hebrews 6.4, partakers of the Holy Spirit. When we came to Christ, we enjoy those same things that he enjoyed. We're called to that. Paul is concerned that they're going to try to live a life, a double life. You can't do that. It's not pleasing to the Lord. He's calling them out from being half, you know. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We've talked about this before, but we're our own worst enemy. Oh, I want to grow in the Lord. I want to know the Lord. I want to memorize scripture. I want to, I want to you know, remove sin. And then we, we go try to live like we used to live and then toggle between these two lives. Like it's a switch we can flip. I'm a carnal Christian today and I'm going to live and do this. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to just really be great at kids camp and I'm going to worship God and help kids know the Lord. And then I'm going to go home and I'm, I'm going to do this, that, or the other thing that's of the world. I don't want to pick and choose which sin we can choose, but it's a double-minded person. You've got to decide tonight, you know, if you haven't. Do you have your foot somewhere it shouldn't be? Is your mind double-minded? Do you think this way and you, you live this way? You've got to decide. You've got to be all in with Jesus. That's how you go. That was our prayer. Aaron prayed it several times. I prayed it. That when we hear the word of God tonight, that we'd be moved by it, we'd be changed by it. Well, that's the question tonight that God's bringing up, that Paul's trying to bring up. Are you trying to live two different lives? You can't. You can't. You can't serve two masters at all. You can't live the two lives. You can't be double-minded. Don't think you're going to receive all these wonderful spiritual insights by living in the world and with God at the same time and trying to balance those two. There's no balance. He's calling us out to be separate, to be different, to get into the wilderness. And don't wander around. Have that alone time with God and get straight to the promised land. Get straight there. Go right there. When that Jordan parts, that river parts, and they walk through there for the first time. You know, in the beginning of this chapter, he says, you know, most weren't happy. Most were scattered in the wilderness because only two out of the millions of people that came out of Egypt, only two were ready to go to the promised land. They did a straight shot. Boom, they were right there. And they said, no, we can't go in because of the giants in the land. And they turned their back on where God was taking them. And they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And Caleb and Joshua were the only two that says, what are we doing? Why are we not going across? You want to be truly one in a million people? That's one in a million. 
Joshua and Caleb are the only two. Moses didn't even make it in. Only Joshua and Caleb got to go. It is rare to be all in for Jesus. It's rare. It doesn't have to be. It's only rare because we choose not to. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Of course we're not. Paul says, of course we're not. Verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. They, they don't build up. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Can you? Sure. Is it beneficial? No. Is it harmful? Absolutely. Some people take this and say, look, all things are lawful. And they stop there and say, I can do anything now that I'm in Christ. Well, yeah, I mean, the blood of Jesus does. He covers over all of your sins. As a pastor, that's terrifying to say out loud to people. But does it build people up? Is it helpful? Earlier last week, when we're supposed to run this race, is it a good idea to wear a backpack in a race? (laughs) Should you wear combat boots where they're all wearing spikes? Of course not. Does it make any sense if you want to win? If you're competing to win, why would you lay heavy, put that heavy burden on yourself and slow yourself down? Paul's saying, look, run to win. Not everything you do is helpful for that cause. Is everything lawful? I guess. But it's not helping anybody else. So he gets into this eating thing again. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, so an unbeliever says to you, believer as a Christian, hey, you want to come over and eat? Sure. Might witness, might share, sure. Eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say not your own, but that of the other. And we've talked about this last week in detail. I don't want to spend too much time on it. So I'm sitting down with an unbeliever and they're saying, hey, dig in. Now they know they'd offered it up to Moloch in the back room, but you don't know that. And they see you eating, but they don't have a problem with you eating it because they know you don't know that. But as soon as they say, hey, you know that steak? It's nice, isn't it? Offered it to Moloch back there. What do you think of that? Oh, it's best steak I've ever had. So you do worship Moloch and your God. You can. It's for his conscience sake that you don't. You say, oh, I didn't know it was offered to Moloch. I don't eat that stuff. That's Moloch food, you know. Not that you couldn't eat it. Not that it's not lawful for you, but it's not beneficial. This person now thinks that you can worship Moloch and God, and it's no big deal. Here I go putting too fine a point on it for 2022. You ready? Oh, I love the hate mail after these. Yoga is Hinduism. It's Hinduism. Yoga is Hinduism. It was born in Hinduism. Any yogi will tell you it is Hinduism. But it's Christian yoga. There's no such thing. Just putting a Bible verse on the wall doesn't make it Christian. That's what we're talking about here. You can't worship two gods. How can I dabble in this over here and do these things? Every position in yoga is designed to 
encourage a higher spiritual enlightenment to reach these gods, these spirit gods. Read it. Look it up. They don't deny it. Namaste. The good in me sees the good in you. There is no one good but God, Jesus said. So let's rephrase it. The God in me sees the God in you. We can't say that as Christians. It's inappropriate. Yes, the emails will be coming on Thursday. But, 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 it creeps in and we don't even know it. We don't even realize. It's just stretching. It's a stretch. You don't have to get low to see, you know? <laughs> Downward doggy. You can do all that without it. You can be the most flexible. It's all possible. It's Hinduism. You can't do that. You walk into those classes because the person teaching it more often than not is not Christian and you begin to participate. They now are justified in what they do and they know you know. And if that Christian who I respected can do both, so can I. And so they're reaching spiritual enlightenment to these spirit guides, which are demons. You're encouraging it. It's for their conscience sake that we don't partake in these things. If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food or which I gave thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whether you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That's the idea. That's why we want to walk. The isolation that we feel with God at first is important. We've got to have that one-on-one with him. And there has to be a purging that takes place of the world out of our lives. And I don't think we realize how much purging needs to take place till it begins. And then you realize, oh my goodness, what's going to be left of me? I identified with all of those things. I thought that's who I was. That was my personality. That's what, that's, that defined me. And he's taking those things away that defined me. That's because there's a new definition coming. And you're going to be a godly man, and you're going to be a godly woman, and you're going to be known for that. And you're going to have wisdom, and you're going to be at peace. God brings all that into our lives. You can't get rid of enough of the world. You can't go too far. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that it would set in. We pray that we would at least think about the things before we dismiss them. And we pray and let your Holy Spirit be our teacher and guide and maybe confirm things and explain things further or in more in depth. But here's what we don't need. Honestly, we don't need to understand. We need to know what your word says and to obey it. And we pray the understanding does come, but regardless, we're called to obey. So Lord, help us to do that first. To knowing who you are and your character, whether we understand it or not, we know that you're looking out for our best. Help us to obey you. And we do hope to understand, but 
We want to obey. So, Lord, we want to do that tonight. We want to give our lives to you. We want to take our foot out of the world, have both feet set upon the rock, that would be sure and strong, sober-minded, even-tempered, consistent, Lord, because we're with you, because we trust in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the night.